0: Is no doubt, it's not a secret, it's filled with people who have troubled hearts. Many of you can no doubt relate. Perhaps many of you have a troubled heart. We're surrounded, of course, by unsettling events. Watch the news for more than five minutes. There's the rising cost of living, there's escalating international tensions, political polarization and division in our country. Another report of police brutality, a school shooting, a lost job or a failed test, a school bully, a bad breakup or a failed marriage, strained friendships, family dysfunction, marital conflict, the loss of a loved one, a terminal diagnosis, wayward children, general uncertainty about the future, Life is truly filled with troubles. The question is, where do you turn to in difficult times? When your world seems to be falling in around you, what are you to do? What will you look to to calm your anxious hearts? In our text today, Jesus will instruct his disciples what they are to do about their troubled hearts. And these are words that we would do well to heed ourselves. And so let's go to John's gospel now. We're going to be in John 14, 1 to 14. I invite you to turn with me there. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1070. Once you're there, I invite you to please stand with me out of reverence for God's word and follow along with me as I read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word. Father, your word is perfect. And reviving the soul, may your spirit revive our souls today, Lord, as Christ is exalted in the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Remember, we're in a section of John's Gospel, chapters 14 to 17, known as the Farewell Discourse. And we are really flies on the wall for this extended time of teaching where Jesus is preparing his disciples for the imminent pain and confusion of the cross. And how are they to live in the wake of these life altering events? So far, Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples, he's warned of a betrayer. He uh, told those who had given up everything to follow him that he will soon be leaving them. And where he goes, they cannot follow. And he just predicted that Peter, one of his most passionate followers, would deny him three times that very night. No doubt. These disciples are confused and anxious. Their hearts are troubled This word troubled here in verse 1 is the same word used to describe the stirring up of the waters of Bethesda in chapter 5. So we can picture the gamut of emotions in their hearts being stirred as they're unsettled and they're anxious and they're troubled. So these words from Jesus are instructions for those with troubled hearts. And he begins with a simple command... Believe, which basically means to trust. Believe in God, believe also in me. The tense of this verb really means to continue believing or to continue trusting. And for these good Jews raised from infancy with a staunch monotheism, there's only one God. And without a well-formed understanding of the Trinity, Jesus tells them something truly radical In the same way you trust God, trust also in me. To trust God is the same as trusting me. How easy is it in times of trouble and anxiety to wonder whether God can be trusted, if he really cares, if he really knows best, It's in these moments that our our hearts are like ships at sea, beaten by the winds of uncertainty and taking on the waters of doubt. But Jesus, just as he spoke into the storm and calmed the waters of the sea, Jesus gives them the command, believe. Believe in me. In troubled times, we need to be reminded that God comforts the troubled seas and that he himself will be our anchor in turbulent days and belief in Jesus will calm the troubled waters of our hearts. In the world we live in, there are many reasons for our hearts to be troubled. But the truth is that Jesus gives us even more reasons not to be. And I want to show you three things in this passage that we're to trust Jesus for that will serve as anchors for our souls and settle our troubled hearts. And it's this. The first is the promise of heaven. Secondly, the path to heaven. And then thirdly, the power from heaven. So let's get to it. The promise of heaven. First thing uh, we're to trust Jesus for is the promise of heaven. And this cannot uh, be an exhaustive sermon on heaven, but I want to show you two things here. From this text, the first is what is it, and the second is how does Jesus prepare us for it? So first, what is it? Jesus tells us in verse two that his fa- that in his Father's house are many rooms. Now, when we hear this term "my Father's house," we should think of the temple. In fact, the only other time in John's Gospel where Jesus uses this phrase is in John two sixteen, at the very beginning of the Gospel. Remember when he turned the tables over in the temple and he told the people not to make his father's house, a house of trade. And that he was very clearly referring to the temple. So we should think of, of the temple when we think of heaven, but what is the temple? What's so significant about the temple that tells us about heaven? Well, what you see all throughout the Old Testament is that the temple was a, was a place where God's presence met with his people. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 8 that the whole temple system ultimately was was a copy. It was a shadow of heavenly things. And now earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 2, Jesus tells the Jews to destroy this temple. And he will rebuild it in three days. Of course, they misunderstood what Jesus meant. But John tells us clearly that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. So now we see a picture of Jesus as the temple. The place where God meets with his people is in the person of Jesus. And now look back at at, uh, verse 2. Jesus says that in his father's house are many rooms. Okay, so think heaven, there's many rooms. The KJV uh, really, I think, mistranslated this word as mansions, which has led to all sorts of wild speculation as to the material nature of our heavenly home. Some imagine that uh, they have waiting for them some country estate with a butler and valet parking, right? Uh, but really, this Greek word monet is extremely rare It's only found two places in the entire Bible, and they're both found in John 14. And it essentially means a dwelling place, a place to dwell, a place to abide. And the second time we see this word is a few verses later, in in chapter 14, in verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home. Monet. Our home with him. So the idea here is much less about the physical or material place and more about who you'll be with. Jesus puts this same idea another way in verse 3. He says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you where? To myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is the destination. And so when, when Jesus says that in my Father's house are many rooms, what he's essentially saying is that there's room for all of us in the presence of God, for everyone who believes. That's what he's saying here. Church, I so want you to see this. Heaven heaven is a real place, a place you can touch, but more than that, it's a person. Heaven is about who you will be with, not about how large your edifice will be that you'll occupy. In the book of Revelation, we get glimpses of heaven, and every scene is focused on a person, Jesus The defining characteristic of heaven is not pearly gates and streets of gold. It's not even the eradication of sickness or death or or pain or even every tear being wiped away. All these things are true and good and beautiful. But do you know why? Do you know why they're, they're good? It's because the absence of all those things will help you to enjoy Jesus more. The promise of heaven is, is not the coolest bachelor pad you can imagine. The promise of heaven is that Jesus will be there. And if Jesus isn't there, it wouldn't be heaven. Now, there may be some here today thinking, that doesn't sound so great. I want my bachelor pad. Being with Jesus, uh, I don't know. Maybe you're really looking forward to a, a heavenly man cave. Or maybe something a little more noble like seeing family members. Or, or maybe being free from disease and sickness or having a glorified body. All these things are good. All these things are true. All these things are beautiful. But if, hear me, hear me here. But if these things are the defining reality of heaven for you and not Jesus... I say this gently and with a lot of compassion. I would question whether you're genuinely a Christian or not. I'm not saying that to be mean. I say this because I care about your soul. Are you trusting Jesus because you want something other than and more than Jesus? If so, that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't die to give you those things. He died to give you himself. The end goal of the gospel is to bring you to Jesus There will be so many side benefits to being with Jesus, so many of them. But Jesus is the goal of the gospel. And this is what's so comforting to Jesus' disciples. They're they're distressed because Jesus is leaving them. So imagine how comforting it would be for them to remember these words in hard times of trial, to soothe their troubled hearts, and to remember these words, You will be with me where I am. You will be with me. And so, too, when your hearts are troubled in this life, believe in Jesus. Trust his promise to you that no matter how bad things get in your life, he says to you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Okay, so now we've established what heaven is, but how is it that Jesus prepares it for us? This is so cool. Look at verse 3 with me here to see this. He he says, if I go, stop there, where is Jesus going? He's going to the Father. But how will he get there? The only way Jesus gets to the Father is through the cross and the empty tomb and his ascension. Okay, so, so Jesus goes and prepares a place for you. And remember, what is the place? It's his presence. And how does Jesus prepare you to be in his presence? Well, think about this. What is it that stands in the way of you being in his presence in the first place? It's your sin. How does Jesus remove this obstacle for you to be in his presence? By dying on the cross to pay for your sin and rising again. This is how he prepares a place for you. So don't think that Jesus goes back to the Father and then he straps on his tool bale and then begins working on your mansion with hammers and nails. The way Jesus prepares a place for you is not with hammers and nails. The tools he uses are the cross and the empty tomb. The way he prepares a place for you is by dying, by laying down his life so that your sins can be forgiven and paid for. And if Jesus goes to prepare a place for you, he will come again and take you to be where he is. Do you see how amazing this is? In just one simple verse, we have a summary of our complete salvation, the cross, the resurrection. And Jesus' return to bring himself, bring us to himself. This is what we must continue believing. This is what we must continue trusting in Jesus for. Meditating on these gospel truths will drive away the darkest clouds of despair and calm our troubled hearts in this life. A.W. Tozer used to refer to heaven as the long tomorrow and encouraged his church to look to the long tomorrow. And the idea is this, that we all have bad days, right? You ever have a day that you just feel like will not end, right? It's those long, hard days. You wake up with a migraine, your car doesn't start, your boss is in a bad mood, you forget your lunch, the traffic is bad, the kids are out of control, and bedtime cannot come soon enough. The idea is that on those seemingly never-ending days, there's only one day that will truly never end, and it's a very good day. The long tomorrow with Jesus will go on forever. Next, Jesus comforts their hearts by explaining the path by which they are to get to heaven. Notice Thomas's confusion in verse 5. He says he doesn't know where Jesus is going or the way to get there. And Jesus responds, not with a rebuke, but with what I imagine is, is a tone that is very caring and very compassionate. Verse 7 Uh, makes it clear that Jesus knew that they knew the way. They just didn't fully realize it themselves yet. So Jesus reminds Thomas in verse 6 with this beautiful declaration. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First, Jesus is the way. Just like Jesus is the destination. Jesus is the driver that takes us there. He doesn't point us in the right direction and wish us luck. He's not even the way in the sense that he blazes the trail by which we must follow in his footsteps. Hear this. Jesus' way to the Father is not our way to the Father. Jesus' way to the Father included unfathomable obedience that led him to the cross. We don't get to the Father By being obedient, like Jesus. The only way we get to the Father is by trusting Jesus to be obedient for us. And he takes us there. D.A. Carson wrote a beautiful sonnet that illustrates this point. I'll read it to you now. He says, I am the way to God. I did not come to light a path, to blaze a trail that you may simply follow in my tracks. Pursue my shadow like a prize that's cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. So how can you, the sons of night, look on me and construe? My way is just uh, the road for you to run. My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross, and stark rejection draped in agony. My way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way. But me. Each other path is dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. This is the way we see Jesus earlier. Uh, He he makes this clear in verse 3. Notice who the active agent is all throughout verse 3. Getting you to heaven, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus does all the work to get you to heaven. You need only to believe in him, and he will ensure that you get there. The object of our trust must be sound. It must be true. Jesus is the truth. Many people have shipwrecked their souls by trusting a counterfeit Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus uh, was one with God, but instead that he was a created God who was created by God as the Archangel Michael. That's not Jesus. It's the same name, right? They, they like to talk about Jesus, but that's not Jesus. That's a counterfeit Jesus. They don't believe that he physically arose from the dead, Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan and was once a man like you and me and earned the right to become a God. Both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons teach that the way to God must include your own personal obedience. These are counterfeit Jesuses. These Jesuses didn't go to the Father and they won't come again to bring you to heaven. So, we can't trust them. We must not trust them. You see, the object of your faith matters. And Jesus didn't teach the truth or point to the truth. He is the truth. And Jesus will say later in in chapter 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, is the Jesus you're trusting the Jesus of the Bible? Or is he a manufactured imposter? Only Jesus Christ is the true God. And to know him is eternal life. And the third claim that Jesus made about himself in verse 6 is he is the life. And what a comfort this would be to his disciples who were about to see Jesus' life fade away on the cross. To remember that he is the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And there it is again. If you believe in Jesus, though you die, yet shall you live. If you are united to Christ by belief in him, then the grave cannot hold you. Because it couldn't hold Jesus. The truth has has calmed, this truth has calmed the hearts of, of many martyrs who lost their lives for Jesus. Comforted by the fact that death would not be the end of them. Death could not hold them. Death would not hold them because it wouldn't hold Jesus. And they're united to him. And this truth will comfort your hearts when you're troubled by the prospect of your own death. Whether you become a martyr or receive a cancer diagnosis, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And just to make sure he was clear, Jesus emphasizes the fact that he's not just a way. He is the only and exclusive way. No one comes to the Father except through him. You can't make your own way. You don't have what it takes. You can't trust a counterfeit Jesus. You can't do this on your own. This is something that our pluralistic society finds incredibly offensive They say that Christianity is too exclusive, that there are other valid paths to God through other religions. But don't buy the lie. Christianity is exclusive, but not because of who it lets in and who it doesn't, but because there's only one way in. Belief in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And this this simple truth should fuel our passion for missions, church. Because people need to know that Jesus is the only way to God and eternal life. It's not enough that they have some uh, sincere form of religion or or faith. That won't get them there. Only Jesus will. I mentioned this earlier. This is why 20% of our entire operating budget goes directly to missionaries who are bringing this good news to people all over the world because the true Jesus is the only way to eternal life. and People need Jesus. If people are living in areas of the world where they don't have access to know about Jesus, we need to send people there, church, because they need to know about Jesus. But for Philip, this was not enough. He wanted to see the Father in order to really trust Jesus. And so Jesus reminds him of something that he's taught again and again and again in John's gospel. To see him is to see the Father. He and the Father are one. And when he speaks, he speaks with the Father's authority and does every work that the Father gives him to do. So this is why we can trust Jesus' words, because he is God. Essentially, Jesus tells Philip that he can make these promises and claims for one simple reason. He is God. Now, the final comfort for our hearts and Jesus' promise is the power from heaven. So notice three quick things here. Who is this promise for? Uh, What this promise means, and how is this promise possible? First, who is this promise for? Look with me at verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these really do because I am going to the Father. The promise is just, it's not just for the apostles. Notice this. It's not for a special class of believer. It's not restricted to pastors or elders or deacons. It's not, only, it's not even only for celebrity Christians with large platforms and book deals and thousands of social media followers. The promise is for whoever believes in Jesus. That's who this promise is for. It means it's for you. It means it's for me. And this is great news. But what in the world does this mean? How will we do greater works than Jesus? This is a really interesting verse. This is, this is great news. We, we will do works that are, or let me back up. Will we do works? What does this mean? Will we do works that are more sensational or more spectacular? Is this what greater means? I don't think so. Unless you guys are walking on water and raising the dead and you're not telling me about it. But even still, Jesus rose himself from the dead. It doesn't get more spectacular than that. So this can't be what uh, these greater works mean. As is usually the case, the key to understanding this is in the context. Just one verse earlier, in verse 11, Jesus tells Philip... That if he's still struggling to believe, then to believe on account of the works. Believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is making a reference to the purpose of his works. And this is what we uh, see all throughout the first half of John's gospel, nicknamed the book of signs. Because these works that he did were signs that pointed to who he is. it's because of the purpose of Jesus' works or signs uh, that others were pointed to who Jesus is. And so when we engage in works that proclaim and reveal who Jesus is to others, these are works that Jesus is talking about. But what makes them greater? How are these works greater? Look at the second half of verse 12 and notice the reason Jesus gives for why we'll be able to do greater works. He says it's because... I am going to the Father. And remember, how does Jesus get to the Father? By the cross, by the resurrection, by the ascension. It's because of the cross and the resurrection that our hearts are made alive to God and we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about this next week as we continue on chapter 14. But now let's put this all together. The greater works that we are to do are born again, Holy Spirit empowered evangelism. Think about this. Before Jesus went home to be with the Father, he only had a few disciples following him. And he only ever taught people in a small corner of the Roman Empire, but now his church spans the globe in numbers in the millions. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind and healed the sick and raised the dead. All these works pointed others to who he is. But now, in this stage of redemptive history that we live in, on the other side of the cross, we point people to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel to them and spiritually Blind eyes are opened and spiritually sick people are healed and the spiritually dead are made alive. In fact, the, these are the greater works that Jesus promised that we would do. Church, this is our mission. And this is why I'm so excited for this evangelism training in April. I truly hope that as many of you as possible will clear your calendars and, and make being there a priority. And it'll be a great time, too, just to train with one another, to sharpen one another, to get better at sharing Jesus. This is our mission. These are the greater works that God has for us. And it's for everybody. Not a special class of Christian, not a Christian who has that gift or not. It's for all of us, whoever believes, remember? Finally, this promise is possible because Jesus gives us everything we need to do it. And this is what verses 13 and 14 mean in this context. Whatever we need to accomplish this mission, to do these greater works, Jesus says that uh, he will do it if we ask him for it. This doesn't mean that saying in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers is some sort of magic incantation that guarantees that we get whatever we ask for. There's two conditions here. And the first is that we ask in Christ's name. And the second is that that answered prayer would bring glory to God. So first, when we pray in Christ's name, this means that we are praying in alignment with his will and with his character. So a good question to, uh, to ask at this point is, how do I know what Jesus' will and character are? well you're holding it in your laps hopefully the good news is that he's written it all down for us this is one reason why it's so important to read and study the bible so that we might know his character and his will better and this is why it's so important to read the bible as we pray because the Bible fuels and gives content to our prayers. No prayer will be effective if it's not biblically informed and shaped by Jesus' will and character. All this means in this context is that Jesus, he's not relaxing in a lazy boy in heaven on vacation. What it means is that he's working actively to resource us with whatever we need to share the gospel with others and see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. These are incredible promises, church. For those of us who lived, who live in, in troubled times, the promise of heaven, the path to heaven, and the power from heaven, these promises bring us hope and excitement for that day when we will see Jesus face to face, But all of these promises only come after a single command believe in Jesus. These promises are only for those who trust Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection to forgive their sin and to give them a home in heaven with Him. Remember, you don't need to rely on yourself. Jesus is the way. You don't need to live in uncertainty because Jesus is the truth. And you don't need to fear death because Jesus is the life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for these rich truths. Thank you uh, for this promise of heaven to be with you where you are. And God, I pray that for those who are are walking dark valleys today, in this room or perhaps even watching online, that this truth would, would break through those clouds and that the, the, the rays of sun of this great promise would, would penetrate our hearts, would warm our hearts with affection for you, Jesus, and help us to long more and more for that day, that, that forever tomorrow, the long tomorrow. God, we look forward to that day, and we pray that you would come quickly. But as we wait, empower us, Lord, to be your people, to do greater works than Jesus, as it says. To be your people, spreading the good news of the gospel far and wide with joy for people, that their joy might be Jesus himself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Oh, for grace to trust him more, right? Trusting in him. Let's stand and we'll sing this together.